Our sponsor today is GLSA. For those non-members who may be dropping in on the call today, GLSA or Group Legal Services Association is an affiliate of the American Bar Association, is a professional membership organization representing the legal services plan industry and provider attorneys. And joining GLSA is just a good way for solos and small firms to increase their business. So check it out at glsaonline.org. Okay, my name is Tom Martin and I'll be your host today. Our teleconference is about uh, the origin story of Codex Stanford and the future of the practice of law. I'm very excited to introduce you today to our guest who I had the pleasure of meeting when I flew down to visit Codex on the sprawling Stanford campus with its rolling green hills and breezy sunshine in Palo Alto, a uh, beautiful place. And he is a true uh, legal luminary. Uh, Dr. Roland Vogel is a lawyer, scholar, and media entrepreneur who after nearly 15 years of professional and academic experience has developed a strong expertise in intellectual property and media law, innovation, and legal informatics. Currently, he's executive director of the Stanford Program in Law, Science, and Technology, and a lecturer in law at Stanford Law School. He focuses his efforts on legal informatics, uh, which is carried out at the Center for Legal Informatics, also known as Codex, which he co-founded and leads as executive director. Roland, it's a pleasure and honor to have you on the show. How are you doing today? Good, good. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. And how's the weather out in Palo Alto? Is it still as beautiful yeah, as it kinda, was? It's breezy. <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of cold today. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, the campus at Stanford is just uh, it's just gorgeous, and it seems uh, kind of out of a movie. It's just a very beautiful place to work. It, it, is, it is a beautiful place. Well, again, I want to thank you for making time for us this morning. Um, I think you have one of the coolest jobs around. And, uh, you know, before we get into the Codex origin story, though, I, I'd, I'd love to learn more about you. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about um, where did you grow up? So I, I was born and raised in, uh, in a small town in Austria in the mountains called Innsbruck. And it's mostly known for having had the, uh, the Winter Olympic Games there twice. Um, and, um, and yeah, it's a beautiful place. Uh, but uh, I, as soon as I finished my first law degree, I, um, I tried to get away from there. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, went to Brussels uh, for a little bit less than two years and, uh, and then went to the U.S. And that was about um, uh, 18 years ago at this point. Wow. Is, I actually had the pleasure of, of uh, visiting Innsbruck with my dad in the 80s. And uh, it, it's a beautiful place. But growing up there, is it... Is it kind of a, a small, small town in, in, in the feeling, and that's why you wanted to, to move to Brussels, or? No, it, it was. Um, let me see. Uh, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a, a tourist destination. It's not too. It's one hundred fifty thousand people. Yeah. Um, and uh, and you know, there's some some industry there. Uh, it's a beautiful area. You can go skiing in the winter, mountain biking in the summer. There's a lot of things to do. Um, for me, it was more uh, during my, you know, I always thought myself uh, as I saw myself as a sort of uh, a lawyer in Innsbruck and uh, and a general practitioner. And I thought that's that's what I that's what I wanted to do in my life. But then um, um, uh, then I was. Um, uh, you know, somebody's texting. When will it start? So I guess people <laughs> think that we're still chit-chatting. But um, um, we are. Um, so I did an exchange year in um, in the UK at the University of uh, Cardiff, uh, and um, and uh, there was a one-year exchange on the what's called the Erasmus program. And that's really the first time when I lived in an international uh, environment. There were people from all over the world. And uh, and that sort of uh, started the desire in me to to live in an international environment. And so Innsbruck is not really <laughs> the place for that. 
And so that's okay. why I, I was looking for opportunities in, in Brussels at the European institutions, you know, first thing out of, out of law school. And then I wanted to study at an internet, you know, at the, at the, uh, uh, you know, British or US uh, law school to get my, my advanced degree in law. And I found this uh, place at Stanford where we have the Stanford program in international legal studies, which is a, a JSM program. And I came in 1999 to, to get my master's here. Uh, and then, you know, I thought I would do that for a year, but really kind of fell in love with uh, California and sort of the energy of, uh, of Silicon Valley and uh, was looking for opportunities to stay here. And I was very fortunate to find a job at uh, a local law firm, Fen Fenwick & West, um, where I practiced copyright law and trademark law for a little while. And then um, there was an opportunity to come back to Stanford. Um, as an um, as the first teaching fellow of the LLM program in law science and technology, because we we started that uh, um, I think in two thousand two, and uh, and so I was hired as a teaching fellow for that program, and then just stayed at Stanford, and uh, we started to I mean, get more responsibilities as executive director of the program in law science and technology, which is sort of an ar overarching program that houses mm -hmm. different centers that all focus on different aspects of law and technology. And uh, about 10 years ago, we started Codex uh, as a joint center between the law school and the computer science department. And we'll get there in a minute. Uh, I definitely want to go into to that in, in, sure. in depth. But um, I, I'm struck by one of the things that you said um, earlier. You said that, that you, I mean, even, even as a kid, it, you you saw yourself as going into the law, like you. you yeah, I you think wanted... from, I, I guess you know. I mean, how you you know if um, you know I thought I uh, like many kids, you know, want to be policemen originally, <laughs> and then I thought that uh, at about ten, I sort of maybe influenced by television shows about uh, lawyers. I thought, wow, that's kind of a cool job, and you can sort of stand up for oh, so in court and and so from from then on i thought i you know that's that's a cool job i want to be a lawyer and so from uh, the age of 10 that's that's yeah that's what you knew you wanted to be yeah cool uh what do you remember like one of the tv shows that you watched that that influenced you uh is it, is it, what was it called perry, perry mason or oh yeah okay yeah. <laughs> but i must say i mean Quite frankly, I mean, I found the studies in, um, in law studies in in the, in Austria uh, quite um, uh, tedious and and very doctrinal, and didn't really enjoy it, and really enjoyed studying law when I came came to the U.S. Um, the program I was studying in was started by one of the um, founders really of the law and society movement um lawrence friedman and it was very much looking at law as not not as its own kind of science but rather as a as a field that is influenced by you know by economics and um as social you know sociology and and uh, and it just took a much more uh holistic view on sort of legal legal problems uh, you know, com also a comparative view, and that's that's really when I started, um, you know, seeing this as some something interesting. <laughs> so what? So I understand how you got interested in law, um, but what what drew you to the the technology generally? Like, what, that's a how great, did that aspect come into it? That's a great question. So initially, I was um, quite intrigued by 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 the media, and. Uh, and I thought, you know, why not start, you know, for my for my research papers and for my master's thesis and what have you, why not start looking into legal aspects around media? And so, you know, I was uh, looking initially into defamation law, privacy law, and that uh, ultimately also got me interested in 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 the in internet and legal issues surrounding the internet. You know, from at the time, you know, trademark issues around domain name protection to, um, uh, you know, copyright issues, pi copyright piracy issues. Um, so I really started focusing on those issues. In fact, when I came here, my research at, at Stanford was um, a comparative research on, you know, the differences between the 
the European uh, tradition and legal culture on privacy protection and comparing that with the US approach uh, to privacy protection. And that was in yeah, 99, 2000, just when the, that first safe harbor agreement was uh, was negotiated between the EU and the US. Um, and so, so I had a strong interest in the, in the legal issues surrounding uh, the internet and, and media. And, uh, and then kind of what drew, drew me to sort of the side of like, you know, technology for the legal system was really that um that connection we built with the computer science department uh professor genesaret he's uh he's a he's the research director of codex he's the, um uh he's an ai uh scholar and uh and he's been sort of dabbling in you know the ai and law world um in already in the 90s um and you know that that community has been around since i mean ai and law scholarly community has been around since sort of the i mean i guess since the 50s but you know they started organizing <laughs> in, the, in the 80s and um and he did um he sort of made me realize that there's new opportunities for bringing law to i mean bringing ai and technology to the legal system just because of the internet the availability of, of 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 data of legally relevant data and um sort of new techniques in modeling uh legal um arguments and um legal processes that he thought there's new opportunity there and and what got me excited about it is really sort of this approach of like you know we do research but not only for the sake of research, uh, not only for, you know, writing papers, but we want to, you know, solve very specific problems. And, you know, and sometimes our solutions, you know, take form in a prototype or real in a, in a real deployable technology. And so I very much enjoyed that kind of uh, applied approach that, um, you know, the computer science folks here um, are taking and that that for me that that was that's quite compelling i love building stuff and you know putting together you know the the, the ingredients to to build real real solutions and that's really what's been get, got me so excited about this legal technology and 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 legal informatics field well that's really interesting i i understand you know that doing like being in an academic position um that it might pull you towards theory you know that it might be more about articles um and and publishing in terms of the theory of uh intellectual property or uh you know different issues that come up with respect to media but your the pull that you got that 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 caught you was more in the direction of application and and actually working on something concrete um, I'm I'm curious that even in in doing the work that you do with Codex, you still continue to to work as a professor, right? You still lecture. I'm a, yeah, I'm still uh, teaching teaching legal informatics. Um, today actually is my last class this quarter, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I I I teach. I um, I do research. Try to publish. Uh, and uh but also you know work on quite specific projects um that uh you know try to you know kind of solve specific legal information problems and for those who might not be familiar with that phrase do you mind defining it uh legal informatics what does that mean uh well legal informatics is um basically well that's a that's a good question is uh sort of looking basically all of the law is um is information it's information that's uh in encapsulated in the laws that we create as humans or information uh in the world you know certain facts you know something occurred or you know somebody got hit by a bus uh, those kinds of things and legal informatics is sort of taking an information scientist's uh, view of those problems and then leveraging, you know, technology and, um, and uh, information technology to, uh, to, you know, solve, um, you know, or automate or mechanize 
certain aspects of that, that information problem. Now that sounds very abstract. Legal informatics is a broad term. We generally kind of, you know, uh, see, you know, projects in, I would say, uh, three different buckets. Um, so one is mm -hmm. legal document management. You know, here we use computers to, to, you know, help us, you know, organize or get to legal information more um, efficiently. The other one's legal infrastructure. Uh, by that we mean, you know, the systems we create to to connect the stakeholders in the in the legal system. Um, so think of like all these these platforms or marketplaces for lawyers as an example. Last one is what we call computational law, and uh, computational law is. Uh, basically the automation and mechanization of legal analysis um so there are two actually two um subgroups of of computational law so one is the rule-based approach to solving uh legal information problems so think of TurboTax as the classic system it's a system that understands the tax code and understands facts about your life and can right. uh, apply that tax code to your specific situation and then spits out a legal decision which is like you know how much you have to pay the government in taxes and the other aspect is the whole area of uh predictive analytics in the law using statistical ai and machine learning to go through big amounts of data if you have the data which is you know always a challenge in in certain legal areas but to go through big amounts of data, identify patterns, and then maybe even make certain forecasts about um, uh, potential legal case outcomes. Um, I mean, there's many different areas of uh, predictive analytics in the law, but it's those two, the rule-based approaches and the statistical approaches to automating legal analysis that make up computational law, which again is one of the sub areas in um in legal informatics interesting it, it i mean it, it is in a way the what you were talking about before about being able to work in concrete areas where you can apply uh the law to a specific situation using um you know using uh, a computer code of some kind or um yeah analyzing the the uh, the data so it sounds to me like it's it's the application of law to the facts using data and technology so mm -hmm. it's a concrete way of uh, applying uh, the law in a specific situation and that's mm -hmm. uh, it's great because it's kind of like the difference between having science for science's sake in theory and actually going out and doing experiments and figuring out what works and what doesn't yeah. so you're that's, that's what draws me to this area um because it's 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 just very applied and 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 i enjoy that a lot all right so this brings us to codex and i i'd really like to understand how did it start you know like how did it, this idea come together and become a uh, become codex we uh, so my uh, former boss when i was a teaching fellow at the law school was uh, peggy raden and she was one of the first people to think about property rights on the internet and wrote a casebook on um, e-commerce law. And she knew Mike Genezaret in computer science and taught about the law in his class on computers and law. And, um, and we somehow, some others who, who kind of, um, came from the from from well, Stanford students and also people externally we decided to do a workshop one weekend at Stanford and we said well you know there's a real opportunity in in starting to do more more work on bringing technology to the legal system and that was about just a little bit over 10 years ago now and we said you know why don't we start a center that will help us kind of organize our efforts around this and um so, so we started brainstorming ideas for names and um, 
and uh, you know we even considered the name Lex Lex Machina, that's uh, <laughs> or Lex Machina, um, that's uh, you know one one of the contributors, one of the co-founders, I guess, um, proposed that, but then later used it for a, a spin-off that we used, but that we that we did, but yeah. Um, you know, I think, you know, at the time it was, uh, you know, sort of the, um, the blossoming of interdisciplinary research at Stanford, uh, different centers were started, um, that all had an X in, in them as a bio X center and a media <laughs> X center <laughs> to, to indicate that they're, uh, you know, the bringing together of different disciplines and, and the intersection of different disciplines. And so it made sense for us. I mean, Codex from that point of view, you know, the, as the intersection of computer code and legal code. Um, and, uh, but also, you know, the famous Codex Hammurabi. And, uh, and we truly think, I mean, the Codex Hammurabi was a, was a tremendous milestone in, in human culture and, um, and the, in, in, in legal history. And uh, we think that sort of this, you know, digitization, digitization and um, of the of the legal system is uh, is as important a milestone in human history as um, as the codex Hammurabi and so that's why we we all kind of you um, uh, came together around the name uh, codex for the center okay that makes sense now so it's it X kind of is a crossroads for different disciplines and then it's yeah. a nod to uh, the the Hammurabi, Hammurabi code. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So what? So this, so Codex, Codex is like a formalization and center around mm -hmm. the concept of legal informatics that we just talked about, right? Exactly. And, and again, our, our focus is on on this area of computational law. Although not all the all the projects that are being carried out under the codex umbrella are squarely in that computational law area, but that's really where we see the, the revolution coming. And, um, and so that's, that's really our, our focus area. And if I remember correctly, I, I, I might not, but the compu computational law, is that the one that you'd broken down into rules-based versus? Yeah, well, it has those two, two aspects to it. So one is the rule-based approach, the TurboTax approach, if you wish, uh, and the other ones, the, uh, the predictive um, analytics in legal settings. Okay. And that, and that overlaps, per, you know, perfectly with how things are. And I'm sure this is where it came from. Uh, it's just coming together for me right now. Uh, understanding that that's it, it, it overlays with AI in that. It, you know, artificial intelligence has two different branches of it. One is your, exactly. you know, rules-based approach, and then yeah. you also have machine learning predictive analysis approach. Exactly. That's exactly right. The different, um, you know, te techniques, approaches to solving problems, and not every, you know, different legal problems require different approaches. And, you know, it's not to say that they're mutually exclusive, they can be brought together in different projects and leverage each each other's strength. Um, but there's, you know, this is sort of one of the sort of big kind of dividing lines in, in general in AI and and also in sort of AI in the law, it's sort of the rule-based logic programming, uh, logic modeling approach and the statistical approach, machine learning, where you just, you know, go through big sets of data and, and try to understand the patterns. So, how? What are some examples of how um, Codex is, has pushed that mission forward? Like some some things that it's done in terms of computational law. Well, we we have. Um, let me see. Our focus is very. You know, we 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 research and we publish, but. Our focus is really on on building, uh, you know, projects, and you know we've built um, computational law systems. You know, one system we created um, is what we called CIPICS, the Stanford Intellectual Property Exchange. That's a system that um, you know helps universities manage uh, copyrights. Um, it's one of the things that um, uh, universities 
do is they license a lot of materials from publishers, but then, you know, the teachers don't necessarily know what's licensed and what's not. And then they, they have to get permission again or pay for permission again to use certain materials in course, in course materials. And so that system, you know, helped in kind of understanding the rights, you know, and applying them to the specific students and the specific courses. And, uh, you know, sort of a, a system that helps you comply with copyright regular copyright law. Um, and so, you, you know, you don't have to, you know, pirate content, basically. So that's that's a computational law system. We've also, you know, worked on projects like our smart prosecution project, uh, where we worked with um, a San Francisco DA going through, uh, you know, arrest reports um, that 14 police officers uh, made, 14 police officers that were suspended or fired from the police force uh, for racist text messaging. And so we, we helped sort of go through these arrest reports to try to understand which arrests may have been based on bias and, and which ones on, on, on racial bias and which ones weren't. Um, I think the, uh, this is still an ongoing project, but the long-term goal for the, for the DA is to create a tool that helps them, you know, basically, uh, you know, vet, you know, rep uh, police reports to make sure that the, the pipeline of cases they're getting from the police department is not spoiled with, uh, you know, reports that, you know, with arrests that were made based on on race uh, on on race racial bias. But this is an ongoing project. But we had to go through unstructured data, you know, the, the, the texts of those re reports and turn them into structured data and filter out spe specific data points in those. Um, and then, you know, we're going to start doing some machine learning on top of that uh, to to try to see that, that the patterns that, uh, you know, that we can take from those reports. And uh, so that's, again, it's an ongoing project, but that's that's another example. But what we do generally is just to yeah, we try to also kind of uh, host uh, academic events and 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 conferences on those topics. You know, we've been hosting several events on the the concept of computable contracts. So these kind of self-executing contracts. You know, that's a big that's a big uh, research interest of ours, and we try to bring the community together to to advance the discourse in that area. Uh, and uh, and sort of we also put on you know these kind of weekly uh, group meetings where we bring in interesting people, work on interesting projects, many of them in the computational law um, space. And then our big flagship program is the, the Stanford Future Law Conference, which um, just happened this past April. And their computational law is, is, is sort of a big part of it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, those, those are sort of the different kinds of things we do to, to advance the computational law mission. We're in talks to actually create a journal on computational law um but that's um yeah that's that's to be that's sort of one of our next next uh projects wow it sounds like it keeps you very busy uh, it does <laughs> but it's all, it's all good fun so there's the, these um specific projects like cipics which that got spun out to uh private company right in 2012 yeah, it became a company and it was acquired by um, a publishing platform called proquest yes and then and uh, the other, another example is lex machina which is also also was a research project first at stanford it also went the spin-off route and that's um, a project that's more on the you know predictive analytics side although they don't want to be known as being on a predictive analytics side because uh, you know, they, they, they say that they are in a data-driven decision-making space, uh, because I think the term legal prediction, I think, makes a lot of <laughs> practicing lawyers somewhat uncomfortable, because it, I think it suggests that, you know, sort of their core of, of, like, you know, legal, exercising legal judgment based on, on their experience is somehow uh, substitutable or, or, or replaceable by, by machines or by, you know, the famous robo-lawyer. And so I guess a lot of those companies that, you know, even until recently sort of uh, claimed that they are in the legal prediction space, they've somewhat dialed back their rhetoric and, um, 
um, and it, you know, no, you know, they're no, no longer uh, saying that they're in, in in legal prediction. And what do you think about that? I mean, you've been working in this space for, I mean, with with Codex for at least ten years, but yeah. beyond that, you, you've been working in this space, and you know, within the past, I would say, couple of years, maybe year and a half, it, it's gotten almost white hot in terms of this interest in, in AI and, and uh, the application to law and all that. W what do you think about about the hype? Is it overhyped? Uh, that's a great question, too. I, um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of hype in it. I think in, not just in legal, um, in, you know, elsewhere also. Um, and, you know, I think it's what they call the, the, the big bang of AI, which started about 2012. And that has to do, you know, with different technologies coming together, you know, the, the ability to process like big data, machine learning, you know, the lower cost of, you know, processing and, and storage of data, even faster processors, you know, this all has sort of reached a level where very kind of fairly complex tasks of AI uh, are, are possible. And, and now things that, that we've talked about for a long time, you know, think of the, you know, the, the, the self-driving car, for example, mm -hmm. they're becoming a reality. I mean, they're already driving around here in, in the Bay Area and, um, and in other places. And so, so I think that sort of has created a, a, a a heightened level of awareness of the possibilities of AI. You know, people have Siri in their phones, they have Alexa and that sort of thing. And so this idea of, of the robo lawyer, you know, that, you know, people kind of uh, brushed off until, you know, a few years ago, all of a sudden becomes a more kind of realistic scenario. But that said, you know, I think uh, we're not at the point, we're not at a point um, in, 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 not in a long time where you know we have a you know we have a robo lawyer who can argue a case in court or who can you know we where we can you know fully automate you know complex legal legal tasks i think for the most part those systems are truly you know sort of lawyer enhancing systems you know so that the data driven decision make you know decision to support systems that will allow lawyers to uh, to, as they say, you know, operate at the top of their license, um, and and so uh, so I d I don't think that you know AI will replace lawyers uh, in in uh, in in anywhere in the near future, um, and I do think though that there will be a lot of I mean I do think though there's a lot of um, pressure on on the on the legal profession um, just because there's new competitors now and we have this unbundling of legal tasks and the clients that are more aggressively you know shopping for legal solutions and and law firms in the traditional law firm is now you know facing competition from uh, alternative legal service providers you know, axioms of the world and from uh, LP legal process outsourcers to, to, to legal technology companies that take care of one aspect, one more, more discrete aspect of the kind of work that the clients need to do in, uh, in, in, in their legal operation. Um, and that, that work was, you know, that those kinds of companies, they leverage technology quite a bit and, and law firms, in the old model are sort of struggling to com compete and they're losing business to those providers. And uh, so, yeah, this is a kind of very long winded way of answering your question, but I think there is a lot of hype in, uh, on AI. Uh, at the same time, I think it's, there will be more and more technology. And, um, and so, you know, I think, there has been, you know, uh, this talk has been, you know, the, 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 the disruption talk about, you know, that the legal, the legal profession being disrupted, that has been out there for at least the last 10 years. Um, yeah. But, uh, but if you look, if you then talk to a lot of law firms, you know, it seems like, you know, there was maybe only change around the edges. And, you know, so there's 
not really, you know, at least for big law, you know, any kind of major major disruption yet. Um, but I think uh, I think the the law firms still have to to be prepared for uh, for very significant changes, and many of those will be uh, technology driven. No, that's that's a great answer because it it ties right into the the part I wanted to talk to you about about the future of the practice of law. And um, in terms of the rate of change, do you are you surprised by by the current rate of change in terms of the development of technology I mean, and how it's being applied? It exploded into the awareness of lawyers. I think uh, most law firms are now trying to think about how do how do they counteract this kind of you know losing business to to these uh, alternative legal service providers technology companies to their clients you know also the client i mean the biggest competitors are their clients clients are insourcing more and more uh legal work and uh, so there's a there's a the great level of awareness um and uh, a lot of law firms are experimenting with different things you know some started their own kind of uh legal placement service you know for you know having their alumni uh, work at companies on secondment you know like fenwick did with the flex program or you know safer Shaw is uh, doing its um, you know trying to break legal projects and approach legal projects like um, in this uh, lean six sigma uh, way um, and other firms you know, like very large firms uh, just recently learned like you know bacon mckenzie they've they they're hiring more and more legal project managers just to you know just to be more um, you know kind of to, to 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 have more sort of legal business solutions that are that are really integrated in the in the in the uh, the clients um, uh, in a client's business um, you know one of the things that I think a recent study showed. In England, I think it was Cambridge and LexisNexis that did that study. Was that most? You know, I think most clients, or sixty percent of clients, say that they think that their lawyers don't have a a, a good understanding of uh, of the client's business, and that's a, that's a huge problem, right? Um, and so, so I think you know, lawyers will have to be more and more, um, you know really aware of what what the challenges are for the for the for the client and rather than providing legal opinions they have to provide legal solutions and so and so the next and then the next thing is they also have to not you know think in sort of legal services and and you know certainly not the, the hourly services but they have to start thinking more in terms of like you know building legal products how can they you know the the, the that kind of work that is commoditizing, that's the repeat kind of systematic um, uh, low-level work. How can they create systems, you know, that that will be able to handle that that work and, and that they don't have to, you know, provide in the old kind of billable hour uh, way. And so, um, yeah, so I think that's... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that definitely anticipates... Uh, something I, I wanted to ask you about, which was whether or not you thought um, the billable hours is sustainable. Uh, not really. I mean, I, think, I do think you know that um, that computers, you know, will be able or are already able to to do better on on you know legal research, and you know, and will very soon be able to to uh, draft. Uh, um, you know, draft memos and that sort of thing. But so any, so if you are, but if you're a courtroom lawyer, you know, sort of this ability to to advocate and to uh, persuade a, a jury of your point of view, I think, you know, this is still uh, very kind of, um, it will require human intelligence. And the lawyers who are specialized in that, you know, the litigators, I think they will in the future be able to still bill by the hour and and, and charge a huge premium for that kind of skill. But uh, I think on on the more transactional legal practice, I think um, you know lawyers will not be able to in the in the long run to 
you know, for the, the, the more mundane kind of transactional practice, they will not be able to, to charge that sort of on the, on the, on the, you know, on the billable hour. Um, and so I think there will be much more kind of, you know, project based and, and flat fee based, um, uh, billing. Uh, right. But, you know, if it's a, you know, very complex, you know, M&A transaction, that sort of thing, I can see, you know, that law firms might be able to, 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 you know, do more kind of hourly billing or do the hourly billing for, for a longer period of time. But um, I think even there, I think uh, the clients will, will ask and the law firms will, will, will be uh, providing their services on, a, you know, kind of a, 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 a flat fee basis and so then efficiency and, and leveraging technology becomes you know much more important of course mm-hmm. what, what do you like what is the most important thing that lawyers can do to succeed in this this new environment i think have I an think. open mind and talk to the legal technologists and legal engineers i don't think they have to learn how to program themselves but they they have to to you know, have at those conversations, even with the clients, you know, maybe bring the legal technologist or the project manager along and come up with uh, legal business solutions for the client. I think that's, uh, you know, I think also the ABA and its report on the future of the legal services market uh, has sort of uh, made that point. You know, it's one of the recommendations that lawyers should really, you know, talk to folks in other disciplines and, and, uh, Try to get some inspiration from there. All right. So lawyers to succeed should keep an, keep an open mind and also uh, try to yeah. try it out. Right. Get, well, get in front of it. Experiment. Think about all the different ways that a legal service can be sort of, uh, I think, broken down into its 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 uh, component, all its components, and then think about you know maybe for a specific part of this. Um, this project, you know, we can leverage technology and, and, you know, other parts need to be managed by, by human lawyers and then have a very, you know, kind of a, a system that will also understand, you know, when, you know, a client, you know, how far a client can be sort of brought along in a, in an automated, you know, way. And then when it needs, when this, when a certain issue sort of requires that it be escalated to a human lawyer. I think, you know, lawyers have to kind of open their minds to creating systems like that. And, and they will have to work with uh, legal engineers um, to, to come up with those solutions. Well, those are uh, great words of advice. And uh, I, ho- I, hope you're, I hope that lawyers follow those, uh, those words and implement that in their own practice, because I, I agree with you that that's, that's the only way to uh, stay ahead and uh, be relevant in this uh, new reality. And, and I agree. Um, I mean, and, and if they are, I mean, the nice thing about if you have a solution, uh, then you know, once you have it in place, then you don't, then, it, you know, it's, it, it's, it's much more scalable than, uh, you know, the, the billable hour, right? You can provide that service to many of your clients and, you know, make money in your sleep. That's right. That's that's the the beauty of it, and and also the ability to work from anywhere if it's a a, a web-based or online service that's provided. Um, one question I have from a listener is, uh, what parallel developments do you see concerning the future of law that has occurred in other languages and other countries? So, I guess just generally, what's a standout? Uh, innovation that you've seen uh, outside of uh, North America that has been uh, geared towards this legal tech focus? Well, I think uh, legal innovation, legal technology is um, is really um, coming of age in, in many different places. Um, there are, you know, lots of events for sure in different places, but lots of startup activities also you know uk germany has a very lively community france um you know i was just yesterday spoke with folks who are working on an interesting project on 
you know, building platforms, but also using machine learning for for labor disputes in Mexico, which is a big thing. So, um, so it's all over the world. Um, we actually, uh, in our code, in our weekly codex meetings, we always set up a video conference, and then we have people presenting. You know, we have people from from India, from Chile, from all around the world with really interesting ideas for you know how how to solve legal problems with technology and so this is a this is a global uh, movement i think and uh, it's 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 coming to to many different countries and um and um it's i think it's a really exciting time in the space sometimes i think you know it's almost a certain countries um have sort of less installed kind of legacy systems in the courts or in legislative bodies. And there might be even, you know, some, you know, kind of uh, developing countries might be in certain areas more advanced than, you know, than the U.S. Um, Yeah, that's something that struck me too, is that um, the change in this area has been global. You know, there's no simple... uh, you know, this is happening in the U.S. or or in parts of Europe, but throughout the world, everyone's working on this problem right now. Exactly. So let's see um, if there's any more questions that we have here. So some ways for for people to get engaged or stay engaged with your work at Codex. There's the annual conference. That is uh, really the gold standard, I think, in terms of uh, developments in, in, in the legal tech space uh, that people can attend. Uh, there's also uh, there's also the the journal, which would be coming out in the future. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, there's also our weekly. So if you go to our website at uh, codex.stanford.edu, uh, we have actually two mailing lists. So one is the one for the weekly group meetings and we kind of slowed down the pace a little bit because um uh we you know we go the quarter is almost over and we're going into the summer um so we'll have i think one in june one in july and one in in august but then in the fall we'll pick it up we'll pick up our our weekly uh schedule again um and so you can sign Great. up for those group meetings and then you you can participate remotely uh you can also present if you have a new project or idea you know uh, to present and you want to use the group as a sounding board uh, that's really what that meeting is um, you know that weekly meeting is meant to do you know really bring the community together and and you know it's a very kind of collegial environment and and no judgment and it's you know a lot of bright minds um, and that group meeting has been growing quite a bit and so so we'd love for you all to to participate so just put your email on the list if you can. Um, and then, you know, we also have the Codex announce list. Uh, that's for sort of the larger events we have. Um, you know, we typically have a monthly uh, speaker series um, where, you know, that's usually more more academic. But sometimes we bring in, you know, general counsels uh, who have done interesting things at their companies. Um, and so that's that's a uh, that's that list is for the larger events and for our future law conference. So it's those th- three formats I should say we have um, where you know we'd love for people to get involved. And um, typically we have uh, a, an, um, uh, not a web like we used to use blue jeans, but I think we're going to use a new system now to broadcast those um, um, those meetings out into the web. And so what is what is that URL? Again, where they could sign up. Uh, it's at Codex, so C O D E X dot Stanford dot edu. Perfect. All right. Well, I have one last question for you, Roland, and it's kind of off the beaten path of what I've asked you before. But um, I, I'm curious to know what's a place on your bucket list that you've never visited before, but you would definitely like to, and oh. and and why. <laughs> uh there's so many places i i i still want to see uh and my wife and i we have three little kids so our traveling um we've sort of cut back on our traveling in uh in recent years uh we've been to 
Kauai recently, which which I thought is a fantastic place. But what I what sort of next on my list is I'd love to go to Tahiti. Um, it's just because you know, I think it's a it's a really must be a very beautiful place. Um, and then uh, I also want to go and and see India. So I think those two places are sort of next on our list. Wow, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> and uh, and I hope that happens soon. Yeah, um, thank you. <laughs> and I want to go well, to thank Vancouver. you. Every <laughs> yeah, and, well, and if you are ever in town, just look. You know, text me or or give me a tweet or something. I'll show you around. I would, I would love to. Oh, Nassim says, "Why India? It's very hot." Yeah, <laughs> I hear that. Uh, why India? I think for uh, I don't know. It's just um, it seems like a really interesting culture and uh, with a lot of diversity. And uh, I love Indian food, and I try to do some yoga every now and then. So I think it's just a fascinating place. But I've never been. Okay, I'll. I hear I should visit in December, and we've actually I've, I've started to talk to some folks um, in India about um, collaborating on on a legal tech event in in India. So maybe I'll, I'll combine it with that. So we'll see. Yeah, that that'd be interesting. I mean, there's a huge, uh, you know, uh, there, there's a huge interest and in, and availability of of development and engineers. Uh, yeah, in, in India, so that's that would be a and great. They, yeah, they they have very um, yeah tremendous talent there, and um, and also uh, um, yeah court system I think which has a huge backlog, and and it seems like there's also a lot of opportunity to bring technology to the to the uh, Indian legal system. Well, thank you, Roland. I, I loved getting to know you better and learn more about Codex and where the law is heading. And I, I wish you the best for the future. Thank, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, oh, you're, you're very welcome. And uh, I want to thank you again for sharing your time and thoughts. And I also want to thank uh, all of you attendees for coming and listening to our teleconference today, which was called uh, The Origin Story of Codex Stanford and the Future of the Practice of Law with Roland Vogel. Uh, again, this is Tom Martin, and I want to again thank GLSA for sponsoring. Remember, uh, Group Legal Services Association is just a good way for solos and small firms to increase their business. And check us out at glsaonline.org. See you next month. Thanks, Roland. Thank you. Okay, bye bye.